If you've been enjoying the Living Adventurously podcast, please, please, please tell a friend. Um, if you've got two friends, tell them both. Um, if you're really bored, you could like and review the podcast on the app that you're listening to this on. These things make a massive difference. And thank you very much for your support. Today's episode is a chat with Kieran Harkin, who is a bad but very keen surfer. It was the transformative experience of spending months studying elephants in Botswana that led to Kieran starting Get Out, a registered charity based in Tower Hamlets in London. The founding goal of Get Out is to use environmental education to strengthen the connection between the young people of Tower Hamlets and the natural world. Through a programme of outdoor education, surfing, campaigning and permaculture projects, Get Out strives to give young people self-confidence, life skills and experiences which will help them in education, life and as environmentally conscious members of their local and global communities. Hello Kieran, where are you, uh, where are you talking to me from today? Hi Alistair, I'm talking to you from... Donegal in Ireland, um, in a place called Danaf Head, which is way, way, way up north, near the most northerly point of Ireland. Which is, as we all know, the Republic of Ireland, not Northern Ireland. Indeed, it is, yeah. Not <laughs> many people know that, but yeah, the yeah. most northerly point is certainly the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, my shamefully bad geography, I'd never noticed on a map that until we just chatted before that the Republic curves up round Northern Ireland to be actually more Northern than Northern Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And another part of that is like when, when you talk about the word Ulster or the province of Ulster in Ireland, not everybody realizes that that has more, that's three counties that are in the Republic of Ireland. So people just always assume that's uh, the political Northern Ireland. Ah, I didn't know that either. I, also, I um, you showed me very smugly, I think, and slightly <laughs> unkindly uh, out of the window the beautiful view of the uh, of the ocean where you where, that you can see. Um, is it good, is it a good surf spot, Donegal? It is. Yeah, it's it's not always as consistent, and it's not always consistent to what I need or what my capability is. But yeah, I mean, it's it's. You've got the, the Atlantic Ocean, and I think anywhere in the world where you've got like the Atlantic Ocean, you can expect swell and waves. Right now, it's just raining and overcast and no waves. So sometimes you you can you can accept the poor weather if you've got a good swell. Um, but right now, we've just got bad swell and bad weather. But well, that that makes me feel better because the sun is shining here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I'm a long way from a wave. Yeah. So you describe yourself as a bad but very keen surfer. Yeah, is that fair. That's that's really fair statement. I think. Um, okay. On a, if the conditions are right, I'm all right. If the conditions are bad, and especially living in London, and you've done a five-hour drive to get the wave, you're going in no matter what, and you uh, and I'm bad. Um, on a, and, if the, and if the stars align. You know, I I could be good, <laughs> but generally, I think I'm best described as a bad surfer. Okay, what well, on your when the stars have all aligned? What's the best kind of wave you can get? How big? What are we talking? Barrels and no, no, probably 
probably, I mean, this Saturday, this, the, the, the reports look decent for about a six or seven foot wave. Um, yeah, that's probably like a good fun day for me. And, you know, I'm coming out of the water happy and exhausted. Oh, it's amazing exhaustion, isn't it? Um, but I really do not like getting hit by big waves. How do you, do you, do you just have to accept that? Um, I think that's just natural. I don't think anybody likes it. But, <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's, there's, yeah, I know. I, there's there's kind of like the thrill of like when you do slam and you're getting like in that washing machine feeling and you, you look back on it and you, you think, oh, that was, that was mad, but it was cool. Um, <laughs> but it's also scary. You know, I, it is definitely scary. Sometimes like when you're taking off on a wave and you're sitting, you know you're too far forward on your board and you know you're going to go over the top of that board. And that's scary. And it's just like get your hands on your head. Uh, as quickly as you can so you don't get knocked out by your board but why don't people wear helmets for surfing <laughs> good question good question because surfers are too cool to wear helmets that, i think that's is that that uh, that was my guess of the answer probably um i can't remember what exact book i was reading recently i think it was the jerry lopez book um and it was either him or someone else back in the early days in hawaii always wore always wore helmets in the water. And I, I, I was thinking, well, why, yeah, why do people not do that anymore? But like when you get into your big, big waves, which are also here in Ireland, people do wear them, you know, and they wear those like little uh, life jackets that they can inflate immediately. And, the, you know, the guys that are using jet skis, they get into those. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's way beyond, you know, I, I sit on the coast and watch that or watch it on videos, you know. I'm yeah, yes. For that. Yeah. You mentioned a book then. Do you, are, the, can, are you a fan of surfing books? And if so, can you recommend any to me? Um, no. I, well, I, I struggle with surf books and I, because, I, you know, some of them are incredibly interested, interesting. But, you know, when, you, when, when I read a book and it's just talking about names and places that, that I, I cannot connect with because I'm, you know, I'm millions of miles away in a different time, that's just regurgitation of names and places and names and places so that I prefer, you know, just the story. It doesn't matter about that name. And, uh, you know, maybe that name matters so much to many other people, but I prefer the story. Um, but I am reading Jerry Lopez, uh, what's it called? Surf is where you find it. I think it's called that at the minute. And that, that's really cool. Cool. The Eddie Aikau book, um, Eddie would go. If you don't know that one, that's certainly, that's, that's a book that really introduced me to Hawaiian culture and like, you know, um, the idea of a water person and what, you know, these people are just basically amphibious and whether it's surfing or, or like navigating boats from one Pacific Island to another with the stars or anything else. And it's called Eddie would go because they say no matter what size the wave is, Eddie would go. He would go. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, strongly recommend that book to anyone. Okay. Thank you. I really enjoyed uh, Barbarian Days. Have you read that? No, I don't think so. Oh, that's really good. And also, oh, what's it called? Uh, I should, be, I can see it in my head, but not my bookshelf. Caught Inside, I think. I doubt, yeah, I, I, I know, I know those names. I'm terrible with book names. Like, I just read a, I just finished a book a couple of days ago by Mark Boyle, which I'm sure you might know his name, and I don't know the name of the book. Um, the guy, the guy who takes himself off technology and goes to live. Yeah, that's a really good book, isn't it? 
Did you? Sorry, I I think. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved it. I, it's the second book I've read of his, and I, I I don't know the name of either of the books, and I and I've read them. Um, this is a we're having a terrible conversation here for podcast listeners. But yeah, that is a re- I really I really enjoyed that. Yeah, the the, the book is called Caught Inside. Um, that's really good. Um, I've moved to using a Kindle during lockdown because I didn't want to be ordering endless deliveries. So I went Kindle for the first time, and there's which I've always hated, but I've become a convert and I've read so many books in lockdown, but I couldn't tell you the name of any of them because I'm not looking at the cover or remembering the color of the book. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've got no idea, but I'll, I'll, re- I'll read that one you just recommended. So why, why do you like surfing if you're, so, if you're not very good at it? Um, good question. Again, um, I probably, because the sense of purpose behind it, you know, I, I feel really strongly about, you know, people, I've always wanted to be outside. Um, I've always wanted to be doing things that were kind of exciting. Um, and surfing is a real sense of purpose. I mean, like, like I said, like living in London and, and driving down to Devon and then even having a really terrible wave or maybe even camping out that night and driving back the next day. It's just from start to finish something that I get a kick out of like that anticipation of, you know, am I going to get a good wave? What's this going to be like? Where is, what's this campsite going to be like? Do I, do I have a campsite? Um, just from start to finish, I think it's an adventure. And even from like the week before what I'm doing in Donegal right now, it's like looking at these surf reports. Like, <laughs> yes. Is this wind going to change? I think it's changed. I'm looking out the window, going, that wind has changed. You know, yeah. I, the whole thing gave me a buzz. Um, yeah. I remember once talking to some London surfer who who just loved getting surf reports from Cornwall, and he was pretty much ready just to ditch his office job and jump in the car if if uh, if it came good. Yeah, I wish I could do that. Um, <laughs> I'm usually looking at the surf reports back home, back here. Um, and just feeling jealous <laughs> okay. or, or thinking like, ah, yeah, I need to get, but I still haven't worked out England. I don't think, you know, obviously there's, there's waves in Devon and, and Cornwall and there's, there's little pieces in between, um, maybe South Wales, but yeah, I need to probably get out and explore a bit more of them. I interviewed a woman, Rosie Riley, um, from Adventure Uncovered, and she's a very keen surfer up in Tynemouth, uh, Northeast England. In the Northumberland coast, um, she's a big fan of that North Sea surfing. Although you being an Atlantic boy, you might be a bit of a snob about the North Sea. <laughs> no, no, I'm definitely not a snob about anything to do with surfing because, as I said, I'm a bad surfer. But okay, I once there, I once went to the London Surf Film Festival, and there was a there was a short film about the North Sea surfers up around the Newcastle area, and it was awesome. You know they. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's always awesome, but yeah. Yeah, was it a bad day in the waters beats a good day in the office sort of feeling? Yeah. Um, so when, you, when you're when you heading from London down to Devon to go get squeezing a weekend of waves, are you, are you going your own, on your own or have you pile a bunch of friends into the car? Um, either, either my girlfriend or by myself. I think the last time I went down there, I just went by myself and, and booked a little campsite. Um, and exhausted myself in the waves all day. Um, yeah, usually one of the two. And th- there is like surf um, Facebook groups and stuff from London where you can like, you know, ask people to jump in your car or you can try and get a lift down. And I've tried those things in the past and 
you know, it's just logistics, isn't it? You know, sometimes you can't wait on everyone. You just got to go. Um, and I'm probably <laughs> more, more that sort of person than, than trying to organize a group of people. And I don't, yeah, don't know that many surfers in London, to be quite honest. I, surfing, I love the theory of, and I've tried it in all sorts of ridiculously glorious places in the world um, and in Britain, uh, but I'm, I, I can't do it. Why can I not stand up for more than two seconds on a surfboard? I, I, f- I feel a bit bad here because I feel like, you know, these are questions you should ask a really good person. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, how did you get, how did you get from the stage I'm at where is you can usually stand up for about half a second, you get excited <laughs> at one second and two seconds feels like a roller coaster thrill. Well, this is how I did it. Um, and it was a guy in, in Donegal, actually about a different part in Roston Island that told me to do this. He said, I, I, I asked him, I was like, I can't seem to turn a corner with this. I can't like, you know, really, you know, be that 10 foot surfer or whatever. And he said, spend like, I think it was 20 days at night in front of a mirror doing your pop-up. Do 20 a night. And, you know, that sounds like a very easy task, but it's, you know, doing anything for that length of time. It's like doing, you know, a series of push-ups or something. And by doing that, I had this new confidence and I knew the next time I was on a board, I was going to able to just pop up when I needed to. And that, that's how I, I turned my little corner. I still get many more corners to turn, yeah. but I turned a little corner then. So just on your, on your bedroom floor in front of the mirror? Yep. Paddle, 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 pop. And then just okay. you know, ironing out those mistakes where you, you weren't looking forward or you didn't or you, you shook or, you, you know, and that's, that's what happened with me. Yeah. That was great advice. Okay. Well, thank you. Kieran Harkins, School of Surf. You heard it here first. <laughs> I'm going to move, change topic now to ask you, uh, what's been your biggest adventure? Biggest adventure is definitely living in the African bush for seven or eight months. I don't even know how long. I think it was seven and a half, something like that. Oh, that's good when you start to lose count. <laughs> yeah. It was a bit cabin fever in the end, so we like we didn't even know what day of the week it is. Where, what country were you in? I was in Botswana. Um, so I got this crazy opportunity. Uh, it's a bit of a so there's there's a volunteer organisation in the UK, and they um, my friend worked for them in Mongolia, and she said to me like, "Oh, I can get you a job in Mongolia." I went, "Yeah, that's that's awesome." And then I got this call about a video interview and I did a video interview whilst I was doing my master's degree. And they basically just called me up. They say, yeah, your friend wants you in Mongolia. We want her to stay there. So would, do you want to go to Mongolia? And I, my reply was, uh, I'm doing a master's degree in ecology. Um, so I know I don't want to go to Mongolia. And he just said, oh yeah, we need someone in Botswana. Can you, <laughs> can you guide researchers? And I went, yeah so i go in i go into my my uh my lectures in brighton university and tell them about it and they said yeah yeah you can do 40 credits um from there who like who wouldn't take this opportunity so i got that opportunity then i was given a job um to stay on up shortly afterwards so what were you do what were you doing out in botswana uh, I was mainly watching elephants, uh, but trying to trying to collect data. I, my master's was about uh, migratory patterns for elephants, and then we did a little study on leopard distribution, which was just a dead easy um, study. 
Oh man, that trumps my dissertation, which was on coots on some grubby pond in Edinburgh. I'm very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe you've got a, a big passion for coots. I don't know. No, I tried to blag a trip to Africa out of it, but but uh, I think they saw through my plans and sent me off to the local duck pond to see what the coots were up to. But no, I did not enjoy that one little bit. Uh, but I can very much imagine how seven months in in uh, Botswana studying elephants was pretty thrilling. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, like the day I got there to the day I left, which has kind of like evolved into the the finding of Get Out. Um, <laughs> But I, I, I was a different person, um, 100%. Um, you know, you think you are that person until you really have lived it. And you really sort of like, you know, even the day, I think the first night I got there, I was like, you know, pretty scared, to be honest, to be in a tent in the middle of the African bush, hundreds of kilometers from anyone. And I think like one of the days I'm left, there was elephants coming through camp. And instead of like, being paralyzed with fear, like the first night, I was like, zip, 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 I'm unzipping my tent, running out, lifting a stone and like throwing it near the elephants so, so I could get back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. So in what, in what way did uh, seven months in Africa change you? Um, different values, um, different understanding. Like I did a bachelor and master's degree and I don't think they taught me a fraction of what I learned actually just being in nature every single day. Um, I seem to have a much better understanding of like how animal, how ecosystems actually um, exist and how they inter different species interact with each other. Just watching animals and how animals behave is incredibly educational and interesting, but it's insightful. Um, and then just being able to take care of yourself a little bit and living off grid. And my job was also, so a lot of, a lot of European countries, if you study conservation, you must go out and get experience in the field, which where I studied in the UK and probably you also Alistair is like, you don't have to do that. I think you might go on a, on a residential weekend to Wales, like, or something like this, but <laughs> it doesn't give you that, that experience to, as a reference point in your head to even like pull, pull back a, in a lecture. So it really sort of set the context of like, maybe not everything I learned in lectures, but just understanding what nature does and, and, and what it's like. Um, I don't know if that's a, a bad answer, but that's kind of what it did. Um, I, don't, I don't think a true answer is ever a bad answer. Um, but did, did your experiences out there um, help get your head moving in the direction of what became get out yeah absolutely absolutely the, I, I i created get out as a result of like different situations in my life at the time um i was quite at the time this is about two two and a half years ago i was questioning a lot of what i was doing in terms of like my my work life sometimes you know and this is i also understand that some of it's incredibly lucky to be able to do it but i you know, finding myself traveling to Vietnam to talk to Vietnamese people about tigers and tiger conservation, uh, or even Botswana and talking about elephants, I just had this growing problem with it that what, why is an Irish guy traveling to Vietnam to talk about tigers? It's, there's just something wrong with that setup. Vietnamese people should be conserving tigers. And it's not like there's not enough wrong in Europe, UK, or Ireland that 
needs conserved or needs an Irish person, like, you know, nationality aside, but, you know, someone from this side of the world um, being involved. The kind of like going from Botswana and living in a tent and kind of like as you maybe progress a little bit in your career and you find yourself behind a desk and maybe you're managing people in Botswana who are studying elephants or doing these cool things was also another big like aha moment of like, what am I doing? This this, this isn't why I do what I do or wanted to do. Um, and then the, the part that resonates most with my Botswana experience is what I kind of mentioned is like I was a different person from start to finish. And when I talk about impact, there is no real impact. I don't think of some of the stuff I do traveling to Vietnam. But when you when we seen some people enter the remote camp in Botswana on day one, you would say, oh, they're going to be difficult. You know, it's just natural to say like, oh, that person looks like they could be difficult or that person looks like they're really nice. But the day they left, whether they spent one month or two months or, or three weeks or two weeks, there were always change of values. There was always a different kind of a outlook and a different conversation. And that's something that I really chased and something that I knew that when you can change people by exposure to the natural world in so many different levels. And when you look at the problems that we have um, and the problems that Get Out works, works on or the issues Get Out works on, I believe they can be reversed by bringing people into the wilderness or or natural world or just showing or facilitating um, a natural world. Probably Alistair, exactly what you do with micro adventures or my understanding is like you want people to go and, I mean, is that kind of similar to what, what micro adventures and your attention behind that is like people will have maybe a different value towards it by just experiencing it? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think similar to you, that came about from the impact that adventure and the outdoors had on me and seeing the benefits from that and then wanting to to share that, I suppose. So tell us then, what is Get Out? So Get Out is a non-profit that I founded and it's, it's essentially um, for environmental protection, but it connects mainly disadvantaged young people with the natural world. Um, and we do that through permaculture, outdoor education, and surfing. Um, and when I say mainly disadvantaged, one of the, another trigger, I guess, of creating Get Out was reading this report that three quarters of kids under the age of 18 spend less time outdoors than prison inmates. Um, but when I, when I read that and, and I, I read a little bit further, it was really like, BAME communities that were being marginalized from from like being part of the natural world. So there was an equality kind of um, aspect to it. And I always question like, okay, well, simple as this, if kids are not going out to the natural world, if they're not enjoying it and understanding it, they're not going to protect it. Um, and that age old saying, you only protect what you love. So it was about reversing those trends. Um, so it, as I said, it's a it's a non-profit. We mainly work in Tower Hamlets in London, and we use growing food or permaculture, surfing and outdoor education as a means to get young people connected with nature. Okay. So that you just said then people who are marginalized from the natural world. Are they are they from your experience, are these groups marginalized from the natural world and the world of adventure, or are they not welcomed in? But so, what I mean by that, are they pushed out, or are they not well? Are they not brought in? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, 
I think, I'm trying to work out where the problem is. Why there? Why these? Why people? Why there's not a bigger range of people in the outdoors? I think the problem is multifaceted. Um, it's related to income. It's related to the way the system is set up um, in terms of like there is. Why is areas of high poverty the areas with the least natural spaces? Well, even if it's an if it's a green space in terms of a park. Why is like is this an is this a, a city planning decision? Sometimes I scratch my head and think, right, somebody sat behind a table one day and said, okay, that area doesn't get everything that this area gets, and it, you know that is it because of demographic or income or or all of the above. I think there's there's a systemic kind of patterns throughout the UK, or maybe not throughout the UK, if I, if I mainly talk about big cities, really, because you can say like someone in, you know, maybe Scotland has got greater access to natural spaces just because of less people living there. So is it, you know, is there a desire to do it? I don't know. But the system is set up that if you are from a poor income area and in a city area, it will be more difficult for you to spend time in the natural world. That's a fact. Um, and that, I guess that's all I can really say. Yeah. Okay. And you're mostly working in Tower Hamlets in London? Yes. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So can you give me an example then of some of the kids you've been working with? How unconnected from the natural world are they? I can give, well, a couple of examples. When it comes to food growing, uh, a lot of kids have no idea where <laughs> the food comes from. And my teacher friends told me stories and I still didn't believe it until I heard it from the conversations myself. Like the fact that raspberries come from bushes or or plums come from trees, I've heard kids go, what? No way. No way. <laughs> or like talk about rhubarb, they've never heard of rhubarb. But, you know, they don't need to also, but it shows a certain level of disconnect. Um, and I, the, another thing that really shocked me was like, I offered a group of kids who are like very sort of into the, the kind of politi- youth political side of, of Tower Hamlets. And I said to them, guys, do, would you go, how about I take you on a get out trip and then like you can help, you know, spread the word and, and all the rest. And five of them turned around and said, no, they'd rather not. Uh, they'd rather not kind of get wet and, and camp out. And it didn't really appeal to them and it, it didn't do anything for their CV. And I thought, oh, God, right, there's there's a bit more convincing in between just saying, do you want to go have fun and, and go surfing? Which I felt like if someone had said that to me when I was that age, I'd be like, yes, I'm 100%, but it didn't seem to be that way. So there's a little bit more convincing to be done. And that's not just that's, – that's multifaceted also. There's a bit of cultural patterns in there and, and, and other aspects involved. So did you manage to persuade those kids? not yet not yet yeah oh, okay so you're still working on them um because of covid um everything can, oh, yeah. you know sure. evolved a little bit but yeah no uh they won't be they won't be forgotten i'll, okay. I'll, I'll let them go okay so is there an issue then that um kids growing up in um cities they don't what well, one they don't know about the options of outdoor spaces and adventure but perhaps don't think it's cool they'd rather do something else at the weekend and go and get wet yeah yeah um i do i think that that very much is the case and that that's the scary thing also you know if it goes that far 
Um, and if it goes to a point that people would rather watch the natural world online or on a TV set than, than be there, then I think there's real consequences involved in that. And that is something that really interests me in reversing. And it's not telling people what to do. Um, it's making sure there's a balance, you know, and making sure that the people are involved. It's, it's also about informed decision-making, right? It's if people are going to make decisions throughout their life to impact the environment, they should have a better understanding of it and not be marginalized from it. Because if you're marginalized for something, you don't care about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's uh, part of, part of what we do at get out is like, if we talk about plastic pollution, and then we're on a, a surf trip with, with kids or, or young people in Devon, we'll do a beach clean, right? So now they're, they're connecting that, that whatever, if it's a McDonald's straw or whatever else in their everyday life. And that gives them that connection on that reference point to go, oh, yeah, I don't want to have plastic in my life or I, I will refuse the single-use plastic. But without those reference points, we get into the consequences of, of young people accepting environmental destruction or just accepting like, their life has nothing to do with it. Yeah, not th- not their problem. So, can can you talk me through then? Um, f- how what what kids you, or you, so what young people you choose to to work with, and then the process you take them through, uh, culminating in the adventures you go on. It's it's new to me, and it's and us as a, as a charity also. Um, so, being like who you choose is sometimes not just who you would necessarily pick looking at a sheet of paper, it's kind of like who comes, yeah, what the opportunities are at the time. Right now we are working with, um, well, we will work with uh, young offenders because they're a very marginalized group of people and we work with primary school age and youth club age. Um, And what we have is we have one and soon to be two permaculture projects um, so they're open to the local community at the weekends and the schools get, or the, these specific schools get involved with food growing and the outdoor classroom. And we ensure that the projects are signposted so they don't need us to be there. I'm, I'm very clear about the kind of the role of a facilitator and not a teacher, when it comes, especially when it comes to school school kids. Um, so can I, can, I inter- can I just interrupt you um, to ask two things? two things one can you explain what is permaculture because i had to i had to google it before i i uh, started chatting to you yeah yeah good yeah good question permaculture i guess is a set of design principles it's really it's the word permaculture comes from permanent culture right so we have agriculture and permanent culture is like a different approach or a different design and it just it's permanent culture so that it's not temporary. It's, the, it's design principles are set up to last. So the word sustainability comes into play. Um, the principles of permaculture, earth care, people care, fair share. They can be adapted to anything. Like if we build somewhere to live or if we're growing food or, or if we're trying to regenerate a piece of land, we can adopt permaculture principles. Um, so the way so, so whatever you do you adapt, you try and think earth care people care fair shares in and in, in the whole process was get out yeah well that's a good question i guess the answer should be yes but i didn't think about it that that widely um but in the in the projects that we do and i i can in a very basic term we use permaculture in the sense that it's not just food growing we try and teach that we collect rainwater right we don't this can be a closed system and 
the yield is not just the food that we grow, it's many other things. So we collect rainwater and we the sustainability around that and the lessons around that and the conversations around that. We we do composting so we don't have to buy in compost and the food waste comes. Um, we have a pond where you know it's full of amphibians and like they're they're kind of a pest control. Um, and we do things like we don't till the soil, we build soils over time. So like it builds up the, the kind of microorganisms and it builds a healthier soil and that gives us the ability then to talk about the depletion of soils or to talk about how that food waste went into the compost, composted, that went into the raised bed, the raised bed produced the food, then the waste went back in and it was watered by collecting uh, rainwater. And there is the thing I love about permaculture, it's just there is thousands of like ideas and solutions for whether it's a desert or a city or whatever, about how to create that more sustainable approach. Um, and that's what we need. Okay. And you said then, you said, so the second thing I was going to interrupt you on uh, before we can go back to, I've forgotten even what we're talking about. The second thing I was, uh, I was going to pick you up on was you talk about signposting of things um, rather than do this, do that, do that, being in their face teaching. What, what did you mean by the signposting? Uh, I just meant that the, the, the garden or the areas, the sites that we, they're, they're signposted so anybody can go in and walk around themselves and they don't need, they don't mean, need me explaining what I just explained to you. So they'll be like, yeah, it's just kind of self-explanatory or you can like walk around and teach yourself what we are doing. So you're doing this with um, primary school. Do you, do you have, where, where is the garden you do, for example? The garden is in Bow in um, London and another one in Beckton um, and soon to be another one in Bow, actually a third one in Bow. Well, uh, but the main, let's say like our flagship. Um, so the, the relationship we have with the current primary school is that we wanted, they got a new head teacher and we, we wanted that place to be our flagship and they wanted to make big change. So it was a win-win scenario. Uh, so we do a plastic free program, the year six go on the surf program. And then we have like this big permaculture project that's kind of uh, on the neighboring site. So do they get, do they come out of school to do some uh, gardening? They do. Yeah. Yeah. So the teachers bring them in and do whatever we built an outdoor classroom. Um, we keep it like, well-maintained with the local community and volunteers from the local community in terms of like growing plants and um, whatever, medicinals, maintaining whatever needs maintained. So it's kind of the facilitation rule from, from us is that it's there to be used. Um, and we do facilitate the local community using it. We facilitate the, the school using it. And then if we run a, a short course, whether it is with young offenders or someone else, We'll bring them there. We'll teach them about food growing in the evenings, and and we'll use the outdoor classroom also. What and um, what? How does it? How does this go down with the young offenders? Do they not find it incredibly boring? Uh we haven't started that course yet. Okay. Yeah, okay. That at, a, at another day. Yeah. Okay. I'll be. I mean, that'll be. A, it'll be intriguing to see what response that gets to uh, young people, young offenders, because it's almost. I suppose in some ways one of the appeals is that it's quite a slow, gradual, thoughtful process, which I suspect, oh, I, I guess some will adapt to more readily than others. Yeah, I'm, my dream, and it's not really the program that we'll probably do initially, but my dream is like, um, is that through that program, if we, if we teach about 
connecting with nature and growing food. And if we get maybe a market garden site, um, we go into like June, July, August, September next year. And if we did have a farmer's market where these this group of young people could grow food and take it to the market and sell it, then further down the line, it would be awesome if we could faci- facilitate them managing a site within Tower Hamlets and them actually developing an income because of it. Because that that is one of like, you know, the visions of it all is that more, because we need more people involved in growing food and involved in healthy, good food than we've ever needed before. So this is like the strategic way way into it. Tower Hamlets needs it, the people need it, uh, and the area needs it. So if we can facilitate that again, that would be perfect. Mm, yeah, that's, there's a lot of good potential in all of that, I can see. Uh, can I ask you about the um, adventure part of things then, that you, um, which culminates in these surf trips, presumably for some of them it's their first surfing adventure, but you're quite um, keen on emphasising the need for pla- the planning phase. They don't just rock up and jump in the sea, do they? <laughs> no, certainly not. Uh, it's a three-part programme. One part is like t- teaching about uh, everyday environmental problems. Like I said, the plastic, um, the plastic problem, things that they can resonate with. Part two is like, we, we just call it the planning phase. We haven't come up with a more creative name just yet, but that is, again, facilitating um, the, the participants to do their own risk assessments and do their own logistics. Um, how are we going to get there? How many miles is it? How long is it going to take? Where should we stop on the way? You know, just simple, simple questions because that will help develop those life skills that they're sometimes lacking. Even self-esteem, being able to like, why would I never go on a venture? Because I have no idea where to go or what to do. But if they go through it once, they go right. Or like looking at a map or Google Earth and, and thinking about those logistics are really good um, confidence building. And then the risk assessment involved with camping out or surfing. And that's not just the logical aspect of like assessing risk is a good thing. It's also, again, the the confidence aspect of like, oh, yeah, there isn't that much, much risk involved in sleeping in a tent. Right? Obviously, there's risk involved in going in the ocean. But by doing that risk assessment, they go, yeah, actually, I don't really have that much to worry about here. Um, I've done the risk assessment and then they've checked my risk assessment, you know? So we're trying to just build those little hidden skills or those life skills that are associated with doing it. I imagine by the time then departure day arrives, you've built up a good dose of excitement. What's, what's the atmosphere like before you head off? Yeah. Awesome. I mean, you got the the super, uh, super engaged kids who are like just buzzing. Um, and then you get the kids that are, are not so buzzing and, and they're just like, you know, you know, uh, quite afraid. But I, I think that's just natural. But um, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, there's just a real difference in mixed bag. And do you, where, do you, where do you go? We go to Devon, um, <laughs> uh, very near Westward Ho. Um, okay. And so kind of North Devon. The- the, the young people, as you, you head there, have they been to the coast at North Devon, that sort of landscape before? No, no. Um, vast majority, <clears throat> definitely not. Um, and that includes the parents also. Um, so we have to run a series of like just parents' evenings where I talk to the parents. And the again, it's kind of like that, that Botswana thing also is like 
even just the start of learning about something and, and then the, the end of it, there you can see a big change, just like what answering changes? those questions. What changes um, with them? Well, because the Tower Hamas community is a, is a big Bangladeshi community and it's a big African community and Afro-Caribbean, there is definitely a sense of um, if my kid goes out into surf, into the surf, they've never swam before. Um, we don't swim either. And that's, that's just a pattern. You know, that's just what we see. And are they going to drown? That is okay. the most common question. Yeah, just alleviate, alleviating those worries and explaining why we do and why surfing is more than just your kid having fun. It's about falling off a board and getting back on. It's about learning that rewards come with hard work. It's learning about a little bit about the ocean. And then they just, yeah, 90% of the parents we talk to, they go, yeah, that, that sounds great. Yeah, sign up. Um, and then there's little cultural questions also maybe about things like, is it just you taking my daughter away on this trip? And I'm like, no, 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 there's going to be teachers there. There's going to be other people. And then they go, okay, okay, right. Yeah, yeah you, they, my daughter can go. Things like that. Yeah. So then when you, you get down there and you do the first day in the surf, what, 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 what's it like by the end of that first day in the water for them all? Uh, exhausting. Um, Big smiles on the faces. Nobody's thinking about phones. Um, all the good things, really, honestly. Appetite. Want to talk about the experience. Want to do it again. Um, just, yeah, all, all the things that we hope for, um, we see. Mm. That's interesting, the turning off of the, the, the stepping away from phones. I mean, before that, is that quite an issue you're trying to deal with? If get off your phone and engage yeah i mean on a personal level it's something that drives me insane um i i just cannot believe the level of like staring at a phone and i'm i'm incredibly scared of it for the future but um it's also something the school was really good at, at helping with they kind of made the decision that the teachers hold the phones and i think it's around 6 p.m um kids would have an opportunity to call home or parents could call them so it was like a flat rule, and it was really good that the enforcement of that rule like, was was dealt with the teachers. So, yeah, but also super important, yes, because you can't have like, kids staying in tents with just staring at their phones or maybe maybe kids in different tents playing the same game, but they're actually in a tent. You know, it's just it's a weird world. Yeah, it certainly is a weird world. And I think what you're doing is a, it's a, a good antidote to, to a lot of that madness. Um, what can people do who listen to this? What can people do to help? What do you need? I mean, the real boring answer is money, um, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, the, money, yeah. Well, you, well, let well, me ask you about that because you did you went you did crowdfunding, didn't you? I did a crowdfunder right at the beginning, which was awesome. Um, we raised about five thousand pounds, just like from a from a really uh, crappy video with some friends actually not so crappy video because a professional uh, editor helped me put it together but it was really thrashed out of nowhere um my sister and girlfriend and myself although i, I kind of kept myself out of it we did kilimanjaro as like last year as a, as a fundraiser but it was mainly those guys who did the fundraising we've had a lot of people just donate um via the website or call up and say like what do you guys need i want to give you some money 
And then we, 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 we also focus a bit on the grants. Um, we get some grants from people like the Postcode Lottery. Um, so that's been really cool. But one of the most overwhelming things is the level of messaging and emailing that I get about coming down and helping out. Or people saying, listen, I'm in Cornwall. Um, I can't really come and help out your garden. Is there anything I can do? This is my background. Um, and that's people with graphic design that might help us out with a poster or teachers that say, listen, can I write a little lesson plan for you or whatever? There's just, there's so many skills when you're kind of like a one person show or a one person show with a board of trustees and volunteers that the, the, the offers of help are, are greatly appreciated. Well, I think you're doing a good thing. That's why people are reaching out to you. So uh, I wish you, wish you well with it. And the, yeah, geez, I, I need, maybe I can, when, when you uh, become a good surfer, you can give me a lesson as well. Yeah, sure. Maybe you can come along. Yeah. Oh, that would be great, actually. Yeah, I can come down, see what you're all up to and uh, catch a bit of sneaky surf advice from some now overly confident teenagers. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kieran. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, same. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.